Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. As we record this podcast, it looks like there's going to be a teacher's strike in Chicago. Earlier, Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced that classes would not be in session Thursday in anticipation of a strike. Without question, the deal that we put on the table is the best in the Chicago Teachers Union's history. Both sides remain at the bargaining table, and WBEZ's Adriana Cardona-Magigat was out talking to students today, and they seem to be siding with the teachers. They tell me, yes, we need those resources, and some of them are upset that it has to come down to this for them to get the extra nurses or to get the counselors that they that they want. Stay tuned to WBEZ for up-to-minute strike information. Coming up in just a bit, Monica Eng takes us on a tour of a huge suburban Japanese grocery store. But first... And live from Otterbein University, just north of Columbus, Ohio, this is the CNN New York Times Democratic presidential debate. Here they were, the top 12 candidates vying for the Democratic nomination for president. And whatever you think of the personalities or their politics, there was quite a mix on stage. You saw men, women, old, young, black, white, and brown. They talked about the possible impeachment of President Trump, but also took questions about jobs, guns, health care, and more. Most Americans do not want to work for the federal government. And saying that that is the vision of the economy of the 21st century, to me, is not a vision that most Americans would embrace. Medicare for all is the gold standard. It is the way we get health care coverage for every single American. And not nearly one word with all of these discussions about health care on women's access to reproductive health care, which is under full-on attack. The problem is the National Rifle Association and their enablers in Congress, and we should be united in taking the fight for them. Jason DeSanto is a senior lecturer at Northwest School of Law. For 15 years, he worked as a speechwriter and debate strategist for senators, House members, and presidential campaigns. And he was keeping a close eye on the back and forth last night. Jason, welcome to Reset. Hi, Jen. How are you? Doing well. So let's start at the beginning. Impeachment is the way that we establish that this man will not be permitted to break the law over and over without consequences. In my judgment, Trump is the most corrupt president in the history of this country. This president, and I agree with Bernie, Senator Sanders, is the most corrupt president in modern history, and I think all of our history. He has consistently, since he won, been selling out the American people. He's been selling out working people. He's been selling out our values. He's been selling out national security. And on this issue with Ukraine, he has been selling out our democracy. So this was the first Democratic presidential debate since the Democrats in the House opened an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Clearly, many of the candidates hitting the same note there. But did anyone's critique of the president jump out? Well, I think, Jen, what what you have here are a series of candidates who are basically singing from the same hymnal. But what they're trying to do is then take that answer into the direction that's best for their campaign. I didn't think any of them particularly broke out on that answer in a particularly distinguishing way, although you could see the faint hints of the efforts to do so. For example, if you're Bernie Sanders, you're going to try to meet the strength of being tough on Trump and then start talking about Medicare for all. Somebody like Pete Buttigieg also is going to try to take that basic concept of being strong against Trump and then take it to his own message, which was the idea of unity on the day after Trump leaves. There's no surprise that Democrats are very much in favor of investigating Trump. If you look at the CBS News Iowa battleground tracker poll, about 86 percent of Democrats are in favor of uh, investigating Trump and opening an impeachment inquiry. So the idea then is 
meeting that, understanding it, and then taking it to your own message. They all tried it. I don't think any of them particularly broke through on that point. Well, before the debate, there was speculation that other Democrats, particularly moderates like Amy Klobuchar, uh, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, that they would come after Senator Elizabeth Warren because she's been rising in the polls. And it did seem like that happened last night. What was your read of that particular dynamic? I think when Beto O'Rourke is attacking you, Hmm. you are definitely the front runner at that point. He's not somebody that we normally associate with attacks on somebody. And yet he came after her as well on some issues regarding the wealth tax and income inequality. She's definitely somebody who's seen as rising. And that's what happens. When you begin to move up, people begin to take notice and they begin to come after you. It certainly happened even in a smaller way to Kamala Harris after debate number one when she did well there. Last night was much more of a robust attack on Warren coming from all directions. And one thing to note here, Jen, is that people like Buttigieg or Klobuchar, and I thought Klobuchar had a really good night, are going after Warren on the policy, on the messaging. But what they're really shooting for is to pick up voters not only who are currently in the moderate wing with Biden, but also the people who have identified Warren as somebody they're interested in, even though they're moderate voters. But let's let's listen to a couple of of the messages we heard from Klobuchar and Buttigieg last night. The difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. And we can get this public option done and we can take on the pharmaceutical companies and bring down the prices. We really can deliver health care for every American. But the way to do it without a giant multi-trillion dollar hole is Medicare for all who want it. We take a version of Medicare. We let you access it if you want to. And if you prefer to stay on your private plan, you can do that, too. Okay, so, Jason, put those little clips into context when it comes to capturing the voters that Klobuchar and Buttigieg are going after? So we have here a contrast on message, and Klobuchar and Buttigieg are trying to do that essentially with what's going to happen to private health care under the plan that Warren and Sanders are out in favor of. So part of that is strictly policy-driven. And what Warren is doing is staying tight to her message, which is that Medicare for All is the answer. Her particular answer itself there, she's pivoting a little bit and starting to move to more stories pictures, people who actually need health care, who have health insurance, but nonetheless are people who are facing bankruptcy. And that's a good place for her to be. So she's not simply articulating the policy. She's starting to paint some pictures, some emotional pictures about who's actually involved here. I thought she was at her best when she did that. For Buttigieg, for Klobuchar, Their efforts really are to begin to be seen not only as the alternative to Biden, but again, to those who are interested in Warren as an alternative to her. And I think that's some of what has been missed a little bit in the discussion about what lanes these candidates are in. If you look in Iowa, for example, voters are asked in that state, who is the candidate uh, besides the one you're supporting who you're interested in learning more about? They almost always say Warren. The, The person they also say is Buttigieg. So if you're in that campaign, you're saying, look, I have to contrast myself with Warren, not only because I want to be seen as an alternative to Biden, but also because there are some voters here who are either interested in Warren or are now backing Warren who I can actually win. And for Klobuchar, it's the same bet. Well, as we mentioned, you've prepped many candidates for debate stages in the past. You've helped them uh, strategize. Last night, who do you feel was the most on message and who wasn't? I thought the best uh, candidates on message last night were uh, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Warren. 
First, for, for Buttigieg, he's good on the, on the contrast in terms of policy. He was strong in terms of using his own bio, his military background on the issue of security. He had a back and forth with Tulsi Gabbard on that. But of all the candidates, I think he's probably the most talented at moving up and telling some larger story throughout the debate. And his larger story is really forged on unity. And from the opening statement, we heard that. And throughout a series of answers, his idea is who's going to unite the country after Trump leaves. There's a reason for that. It suits, I think, his personality, but also same poll I talked about a minute ago. When Democrats are asked in Iowa what's most important to them in a candidate, the highest polling number is a candidate who can unify. Now, we might not think of that ordinarily, but about 97 percent, 96 or 97 percent of those polled in that state are saying that's actually what they want. That's a bet that Buttigieg is making, that he thinks he can do that. I thought Klobuchar was also strong on message for many of the same reasons. I also think she comes across in many ways as warmer than Buttigieg and in some ways more human. And I think Warren did a good job despite being under attack. And particularly if you look at the income inequality debate, I think anytime you have everybody on stage talking about uh, a wealth tax, uh, you're winning the debate because they are now debating on your grounds. And I thought she did a fine job there as well. Before we we have to wrap up, I want to talk about foreign policy and how that showed up in the debate last night. Um, President Trump's decision to pull troops out of northern Syria, the result of that, Turkey invading Syria, uh, that came up, of course, and it gave candidates a, a chance to prove whether or not they'd be a competent commander in chief. And it's an interesting dynamic because you have two people on that stage with military experience. You, of course, have Joe Biden with extensive foreign policy experience. And I wonder how the candidates position themselves specifically on that issue. That was a place where Biden did well simply by talking about his experience. That clip you just played about the NRA was another place where I thought he did well by leveraging his experience, not in a way that makes him seem like a dinosaur, but makes him seem like somebody who actually has gotten results before. And I thought he did that well. Warren's answer there was a little dismissive, was basically we need to get out of the Middle East. And that doesn't seem particularly nuanced. It, it may speak to a particular branch of the Democratic electorate, but it seems a little less nuanced. And she wants to talk about domestic issues anyway. But if you're talking about the national security issue, uh, I thought the mayor did a good job of using his personal experience. And I thought Biden did a very good job of citing his governing experience in that area. So we should say this was a three-hour debate, uh, the fourth of 12 Democratic uh, debates. At one point, Cory Booker says, I'm having deja vu all over again. And I wonder at this point, with this many candidates on the stage, are these debates changing the minds of American voters as we get closer to the Iowa caucuses? Shout out to Yogi Berra there by Cory Booker, right? (laughs) Are they changing minds? I think they can once you get to this point. Once you start getting to October and November, you're on the glide path to the caucuses and the New Hampshire primary to kick off voting. So I think we're at the point where realignment can start to happen. Twelve people on the stage is too many. And my own view in watching the debate was the first hour was highly substantive. It was illustrative. It had people in very good form, both stylistically and also substantively. I thought the second hour was a hash. I thought it was just a mess to watch as a viewer and keep it straight. I thought hour three, there were some interesting exchanges between Warren, Sanders, and Biden. And I think those still are places where voters are going to be making up their minds. That's Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at Northwestern University. Jason, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, Jen. Always enjoy it. If you've ever wandered through an international grocery store and wished you had a guy to help you shop, 
You're not alone. WBEZ's Monica Ng was so interested in this concept, she's enlisted cultural guides to help in a series we're calling Global Groceries. Now, this week, she got food tips from Mitsua Marketplace in Arlington Heights. She recently toured the Japanese mall with Reset producer Jason Mark and Mitsua spokeswoman Kimio Naka. You can check out her 15-item Japanese shopping list at WBEZ.org. It includes pictures and tips from Naka on what to do with the food items, plus suggestions on how to navigate the food court. And Monica Ng joins me now. Welcome. Thanks, Jen. Happy to be here. So Mitsuo Marketplace is more than a grocery store. Just explain exactly what it is and how long it's been around. Well, it opened up in the mid-80s when a ton of Japanese businesses opened up in the northwest suburbs, and they brought in their executives and their workers and their families, and they wanted a place to get authentic Japanese food. And so it's, it's, it's a grocery store, it's a food court, it's a bookstore, it's a gift store. Uh, lots of kids who are into anime can get their hair dyes and their action figures and their comics there. It's like a, a small little island of Japan. Hmm. So what do they have? in the grocery store and how is it different from other international grocery stores you might find? Well, you know, each international grocery store has its own flavor. You know, some uh, might feel very Eastern European or Chinese lean one way, but Japanese, they go for um, really uh, sort of prestige items. And you'll see like one piece of fruit delicately nestled in styrofoam or, you know, one beautiful piece of fish or one beautiful piece of broccoli or one mushroom. One and mushroom? A, yeah, because they, they like like these real really high-quality, gorgeous pieces of produce. And then they've got, you know, Japanese shampoos and Japanese cosmetics, all the comforts of Japan right there with very high-end premium food items. Okay, so you curated this 15-item shopping list for us. How did you decide what to choose? Well, it was really hard because there's so much stuff there. But what Jason and I decided we would ask Kimio is is stuff that is a staple of the Japanese kitchen, but that many non-Japanese wouldn't know necessarily what to do with or how to shop for. So first on your list is miso, something probably a lot of people who have eaten Japanese cuisine are are pretty familiar with. Mitsua has dozens of varieties though. So what do you do with all these miso? Well, that's what I asked Kimiya Naka, and here's how she started explaining it to me. Miso is one of the most uh, common ingredients in Japanese cooking. You can use them, of course, for miso soup, or you can marinate meat with the miso for grilling. And there are different types of miso. Some are white, you can see. Red miso is more common. Usually shiro miso is uh, sweeter and red miso is more uh, salty. This one says dashi miso. What does that mean? Dashi is a Japanese uh, soup stock. I personally like white miso, a little sweet, from the Kansai region. Hmm. So lots of different miso. And what I learned is, you know, I wanted my miso soup at home to taste like it is at the sushi restaurant. And I learned if you get the dashi, that's already got the bonito flakes and some kelp that give it that deeper flavor. So that's a, it's a good trick. Okay, now there's another soybean-based item that probably not as many people are familiar with. It's called natto. Tell us about that. Well, it's kind of gross, but um, <laughs> here, here Camille explains the appeal of natto. This is also one of the main, uh, very common uh, dishes for breakfast. It's a sticky and it's a fermented uh, soybeans. You open it and you mix it with the raw eggs and mix it and it's sticky and you put it on the bowl of rice 
and eat it with a miso soup. The flavor is very interesting. Many non-Japanese do not like it because it doesn't taste good. It's considered a healthy dish, healthy food. Now, I had natto once many, many years ago, and I'm trying to remember the flavor, and I remember maybe a slight bitterness? Bitter, stinky, really slimy, and uh, and kids love it for breakfast, and when you stir it up with a raw egg, it gets extra slimy. I was going to bring someone for you to taste, but then I realized you'd already had it, so I didn't want to bring that particular delicacy. But it's supposed to be good for osteoporosis, mm. and so as, uh, as I get up there in age, I'm thinking, okay, I'll just put a ton of soy sauce and wasabi on it. All right. Now, they make a ton of fresh sushi um, there every day to purchase. I understand really great prices too. Yeah, it's amazing. But do they have what you need if you want to make sushi at home? They sure do. They have this whole sushi grade fish case where you can get tuna and yellowtail and salmon and and all sorts of fish that you can just uh, put on top of rice as Camillo says. This is a Polak roll. It's called mentaiko. Again, you can eat it with the bowl of rice Oh, in Japan, spaghetti with uh, with the Polak roll. This is like super popular. If you go to Italian restaurants in Japan or even izakaya in Japan, you see spaghetti with the Polak roll. So, yeah, one of the things you find in the sushi case is are these egg sacs. Basically, they look like sausages, but they are sacks full of Pollock uh, roe. And, and this spaghetti I made for you, this pasta I made for you, it's, it's cream, it's butter, it's soy sauce, and the, the fish eggs. And it's delicious. Yeah, it's so popular. And now I realize why, because it's, it's almost like fettuccine Alfredo. Yeah, it's like the, the fish eggs add the kind of salty bite you'd yeah. expect from cheese. Right. And, I mean, you put butter and cream on just about anything is going to be good. But this is super tasty. I like it. Thank you very much. I want to hear about some of the other foods you'd want to have in your kitchen. What did you find? Well, one of them that I'd never even thought about was mirin. And and she talks to us a bit about mirin here. You use it in almost everything. Soup, a stir-fry dish, or seasoning meats and fish. This is a must-have uh, seasoning and the cooking sake is also essential, uh, too. Uh, it helps take away the smell from the fish or the meat and also uh, makes the meat tender. So, you know, if you've ever had a sort of slight sweetness in your ramen or in the dipping sauce for your tempura, mm-hmm. that's mirin. And they say it's sort of like this hidden gem of Japanese cooking that you might want to just put in your marinade. And, and what is it exactly? It's rice wine that's not like fermented to the point where it's uh, it's more like wine. It's sweet. Mm. There's a real sweetness in there. Now, Japanese mayonnaise has become a really big thing with American foodies. Oh, What's yeah. that about? You know, it has this real appeal because of this deep flavor. And so I asked Camille, what's the difference between like a Hellman's mayonnaise and a Japanese mayonnaise? We use more egg yolk in it. It's uh, definitely more flavorful and potato salad or sandwiches or even with the karage, deep fried chicken. You mix mayonnaise with the togarashi, chili pepper, spice it. So you've got your, your, your fried chicken and you can put some more stuff on it with mayonnaise. And um, I have to say, some people say that the secret is a little MSG in there. <laughs> and you brought me some of this to taste, yeah. too. This is the best thing about 
this job. People bring me food <laughs> to eat in the studio. It's amazing. But it's much creamier, a, a slightly mm-hmm. denser texture than I'm used to with mayo. With those extra egg yolks. Yeah, yeah and a little, a little more savory, too, a little more umami in there. We're talking with WBEZ's Monica Eng about food and tips from Mitsua Marketplace in Arlington Heights. She'll be our guide for a series we're calling Global Groceries. The series aims to help you make the most of your trips to international markets and get you acquainted with key ingredients used in everyday cooking around the world. Monica, groceries aren't the only thing to check out in Mitsua. They've got this pretty famous food court. Tell us about it. Just recently, they revamped the food court. I mean, it's the place where you would go for the best tempura and the best ramen. But now they brought in this um, this chain called uh, Toritetsu Yakitori. And yakitori are things on sticks, things grilled on sticks. You can get lots of chicken thighs, chicken hearts, chicken wings, chicken gizzards, beef, pork, sausages, uh, fish cakes, all on skewers. But they also make this thing called takoyaki. And it's the only place that makes takoyaki, which are octopus fritters from scratch. And they're just delicious. So that was the first stand you try. What were some of the other things you took on? Well, they've also got this new place that is a, uh, a Japanese diner. And uh, Camille explains like what these Japanese diners uh, are like here. This is a new uh, stand too. It's called Tokyo Shokudo, Tokyo Diner. You see all the traditional comfort food here. They usually, we call it teishoku. A main dish with a bowl of rice and, and miso soup and, and a pickle as a side dish. Main dish is a karaage, chicken karaage or pork cutlet or grilled salmon, grilled mackerel is very popular and fried oyster plate. This is my favorite. I get this every time I come here because I can't make this at home. Making you hungry? <laughs> just a touch. Yeah. Just a touch. Now, you also hit up a ramen stand, which is pretty popular. It has these long lines on the weekend. Yeah. Tell on me the, about it. On the weekend, it can take an hour to get ramen at the Santoka ramen stand. And it is a chain from Hokkaido, uh, which is known for its food culture. But the, the ramen is really delicious. And Kimio talks about the different flavors here. Here, they have a tonkotsu. Which is the pork broth. Uh, yes, pork broth. Miso ramen and shoyu. Soy sauce broth sauce and shio that's salt. They have a spicy miso ramen too. So, again, depends on what kind of ramen you like. I personally like miso ramen because it's flavorful. Yeah, and uh, they are topped with uh, mema and chashu that's a pork belly and naruto and the fish cake. Yes, and Tokyo onions. Do you have a favorite ramen? I really like the spicy miso there, too, but the tonkatsu is, like, super flavorful with all that, you know, porky broth. Now, I know for purists, there's a question about whether there's a right or wrong way to eat ramen. What did you find out? Well, we found out that making noise is not a problem. We talked to Camille about it right here. I think slurping is just uh, how you eat it, and otherwise it's very hard to eat. In Japan, you can lift uh, a, a ball. When you eat rice or soup or even... It's not considered impolite. Uh, yes, it's actually proper to make, uh, make a sound, slapping sound. So just in case there's a question, yes, slurp your ramen. Yeah, and, and Jason did a good job slurping it. He's become an expert slurper. But I wanted to say that, you know, after all of these feasts I told you about, I brought you a little dessert. Okay. And it's called yokan, and it's a sort of a bean paste and agar jelly that you would slice to have with, you know, slightly bitter green tea. And um, and I brought you also dried squid, which you would eat, you know, while you're watching the game, drinking beer with the guys and the gals. 
So uh, I brought you an array of, of, of lots of Japanese snacks because I wanted you to feel like you went with us to Mitsua, even though you had to miss it. Well, if you're not hungry yet, head over to WBEZ.org. You can see a ton of pictures of the products we've been talking about. And you'll also know what to look for when you shop for your next Japanese meal. We've been here with WBEZ's Monica Ang. Monica, thanks so much. Thank you. Wow, is that good. And that's a wrap for today's Reset. Remember, Chicago Public Schools will be open tomorrow, but classes will not be in session in anticipation of the teachers going out on strike. Stay tuned to WBEZ for the latest updates on the negotiations and stay in touch with us via Twitter. We're at WBEZ Reset. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. 